0: Welcome to Everything is Connected, where we explore the intersections between the world outside us and the worlds within us. I'm your host, Jonathan Blake. And before I became a rabbi, there was a long time in my life when I actually thought I was going to be a scientist myself. So as a kid, I knew after watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos on TV that I was going to be an astronomer. And then in high school, I realized there was a lot of math. So I needed a science career with less math. So I go off to college. I'm taking my freshman year geology courses. I'm really into rocks. And so I decided I'm going to be a hydrogeologist or an environmental geologist, something like that. And I really am pursuing this very diligently, but I had a change of heart my sophomore year of college. I was taking a class in invertebrate paleontology with my professor who happens to be a renowned sedimentologist, which is a person who studies dirt for a living. And we're on a field trip to Cape Cod, and we're wading through mud up to my knees in order to procure, like, mollusk shells, clams and scallops and whatnot, to bring back to the lab for analysis. So I'm covered in mud, and I realized at 7.30 a.m. in about 55-degree weather in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, that I hate dirt. And I had like this amazing religious epiphany that I'm meant to wear a jacket and tie for a living and not be a geologist. But my love of science has never left me. And as a rabbi, I found ways to make the case consistently and often that science and spirituality don't need to be mutually exclusive. And fortunately, there are other advocates for harmonizing science and religion out there. One of the most thoughtful, articulate, and outspoken proponents of this point of view is our guest on today's show, Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Very happy to have you. Jeff is the founding director of an organization called Sinai and Synapses, which is sponsored by the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, or CLAL, in New York City. And this is how your website describes what you do for a living. Sinai and Synapses seeks to bridge the religious and scientific worlds offering people a worldview that is scientifically grounded and spiritually uplifting. Uh, How exactly do you do that?
1: How exactly do we do that? That's a great question. Um, We start with the science. We really believe that the most important thing to understand our world is, what is the world actually showing us? One of the wonderful things, science is actually not about getting things right. Science is about getting things progressively less wrong and that entails a level of humility and uh, understanding that we may be incorrect, that data may get overturned, theories may get overturned. And so we start by saying, what is the best, most accurate science that we currently know? And can we build from that? Can we find moments of awe or connection or wonder that are going to uplift us spiritually? And so that might be something dealing with the heavens of looking at the solar eclipse or the tides or it could be something of the changes in genetics and what we're able to do with the human genome and the power that that entails or it may be simply looking at nature or it may be a better understanding of human psychology and so we start by saying what does the science say and can we use that as a way to elevate who we are and Another line that we sometimes use is that the biggest questions that we face in this world, they're not religious questions and they're not scientific questions, they're human questions. And we need wisdom from any and all sources that we can find to be able to enhance ourselves and our world.
0: So what have been the significant markers or developments on your own path, whether academic or spiritual, that have led you to your current work?
1: very similar to your background, actually. Uh, I started high school and college as a math major. I remember starting college and saying I knew with absolute 100% certainty that I was going to be a math major. Nothing was going to change my course until about three semesters in when I was taking abstract algebra. And I remember proving that every Principal ideal domain is a unique factorization domain. I don't remember what that means.
0: I'm giving a sermon on that this Friday. Come in here. It's going to be amazing.
1: Everyone knows what that means, right? That's it's it's right. so right. Our uh,
0: listeners are just kind of nodding off because they've heard this so many times before.
1: I know. Because, of course, this is what everyone talks about. And, and, and I remember proving it and saying, and? Uh, it was intellectually very satisfying to me, but it left me very spiritually empty and realized that there were different ways that we can think about the world. There are questions, and when we have questions, there are either answers or there are responses. And to me, math was an answer. And, you know, you solve the equation and you get it right. But life is much more complicated than that. There are not single answers. There are responses that we have to create. And so I changed majors. I went from math to religion and Jewish studies, which was the best decision of my life. And Spent time after college doing some work. I did some volunteering in Israel. I did some work in curriculum development outside of Boston and then started rabbinical school. And in rabbinical school, I went back to my love of science, although not as much the math as psychology and cognitive neuroscience, and did my rabbinic thesis on rabbinic literature and what's called emotional intelligence, which is a better understanding of who we are and why we act the way that we do. And was doing All sorts of study, I was joking that I loved going to the Cloud Library in Cincinnati for my Talmudic studies, and then I would go to Barnes and Noble and read the psychology books and linking both of those. And so everything from why do we make stupid decisions, because everyone makes stupid decisions. There's a lot of research behind that. And there's all sorts of work in the Talmud and discussion in the Talmud about the Yetzer Hara, the impulse to do evil. And is that really evil or is that just counterproductive? questions of happiness and joy, what gives us fulfillment. There are tremendous, wonderful texts about that. And there's science and research behind that. And so what the rabbis were talking about and what science were talking about were essentially the same kinds of questions coming at it from different perspectives. And so after I I was the assistant and associate rabbi of Temple Bethel in Chappaqua and was finding that I was bringing in studies into everything I was teaching, everything I was preaching. It almost became a running joke that actually every sermon it would say. And there was a fascinating study that shows X or Y or Z and was finding that actually my congregants were in many ways resonating more with the science than the text. And in a lot of ways, the science was an entry point to talk about the text because everyone was reading the New York Times science section. Everyone's listening to NPR. They're not necessarily reading Talmud. My congregants and I were essentially, unless they were scientists, essentially on the same page, had the same lay level of science, understanding, and passion. And if I was able to use that and engage what the New York Times science section was saying as a link to talk about the Torah portion of the week or a Talmudic text, we would be on the same page and could then use that science as a way to engage in the conversation in a deeper way.
0: So I suspect that, You and I are equally disturbed. There's a rest of that sentence. (laughs) 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 I suspect that you and I are equally disturbed by the rise of religious extremism, this trend that seems only to have increased exponentially over the four and a half or so decades that I've been alive. A lot of those extremist voices are very anti-science So what would you say to people who turn to their religious tradition by way of supporting doctrines like creationism, intelligent design, and the denial of science, especially like climate science?
1: I'm going to say something that may be a little bit surprising on this, uh, because I am a strong—I don't even want to say believer, because believe is not the the right word. Evolution is a fact. The universe is 13.8 billion years old. Climate change is happening. Those are— in my mind, facts. But people are not convinced by facts. People are convinced by the sources that they're connected to. They're relating to their senses of authority, what their worldview is, um, where they're coming from. And so I'm definitely disturbed by people who don't accept mainstream science, but I also think that it comes from a point of um, the relationships that they have and where they situate themselves. And so one of my friends, he's on our advisory board, is a man named Michael Zimmerman, who's a professor of biology, who founded the Clergy Letter Project. Clergy Letter Project was an attempt to see, could they get clergy to be able to sign a document saying, we as clergy believe that evolution is a fact, and we should not be teaching creationism in schools. You know how many Christian clergy he got to sign the document? I have no idea. Right now, it's over 12,000. I think it may be over 15,000.
0: That's a lot more than I would have guessed.
1: It's a lot more than what you would have guessed. And one thing that Michael Zimmerman has talked about is you don't want to have the Harvard-educated biologist coming into a church in Kansas to talk about why evolution is true. You should actually have the pastor saying, this is why science is important. In the same way that I think it's surprising when a scientist says, I actually find value in religion. Because We trust the people that we have relationships with. We trust the people who are situated in our own worldview. And so there is demonization that happens. And I see it from the ultra-left, and I see the demonization from the ultra-right. And we really believe that the way the conversation happens is from the middle out. And to have somebody who says, tell me about how did you come to this belief system? Why is that scary for you? Because I think a lot of people, for example, evolution or climate change, it's not a question of data. For a lot of people, it's an existential threat. It's an existential threat to their worldview. It's an existential threat to how they experience God. It's a belief that maybe their soul doesn't exist. That's not something that you're going to have a conversation where, okay, here's what the data shows is going to change their mind. Well, doesn't this
0: move in two directions? Because in addition to the people who are deniers of science, you also have well-known deniers of the value or validity of religion and religious belief and thought. Richard Dawkins comes to mind, Uh, the late essayist Christopher Hitchens, both wrote very well-noted screeds against religion, basically arguing that it has been made invalid by scientific findings in our day and age, and that religion is in fact not only invalid, but dangerous.
1: Absolutely. And I think, again, it comes to the question of sources and authority. And I remember a few years ago, Richard Dawkins promoted what he called the Reason Rally, uh, which was in D.C. a few years ago. And I don't know about you. I would find a, very, a reason rally to be very reasonable. I am in favor of reason. And at the Reason Rally, Dawkins talks about uh, the Catholic community. And he says, mock them in public with contempt. And to me, that doesn't strike me as very reasonable. If you want religious people to be embracing science, attacking who they are at their core is an utterly unproductive methodology. Forget about whether or not that is a moral way to be able to talk to people. I think it's unproductive. And I'm not particularly interested in seeing who is more wrong, the ultra-right or the ultra-left. That's, I, I don't even know how to answer that question. I'm much more interested in trying to be able to grow the conversation, as I said earlier, from the middle out. There's somebody that I I know who had worked at NASA, now he works at Harvard, and grew up as a young earth creationist, and goes home and has dinner with his father. How do you have that conversation? You don't want to be alienating your parents when you're having Thanksgiving dinner, So he has to think about how do I talk about this in a respectful kind of way rather than demonizing either side.
0: So this idea of creating opportunities for rapprochement between people whose perspective is largely informed through science and people whose perspectives are largely informed through religion actually seems to fly in the face of some peacemaking efforts that have been proposed in the past, I seem to recall that the great scientist Stephen Jay Gould Mm -hmm. talked about science and religion as non-overlapping magisteria. Magisteria is a fancy word for category, but non-overlapping, meaning, for lack of a better phrase, that science and religion should remain separate but equal. How do you feel about that?
1: So my experience, and there's a lot of data about this, particularly in the Jewish community, that tends to be where most Jews place themselves, and that usually works for most people most of the time because I'm one of a handful of people who think about this on a day-to-day basis. Most people are not. Most people are raising their kids, or they're um, paying their bills, or they're going to their work. They're not thinking about science and religion. Do they come together? Are they separate? That's not something that they're thinking about on a day-to-day basis, but there are moments where it does. There are moments where they do rub up against each other, where they do conflict, where people grapple with this question. Sometimes it's an existential question of where did we come from, whether that's a question of evolution or origins of the universe. Very often it comes up in questions of health. Um, Why did God give me this disease? How do I overcome this disease? That's a piece where the science and religion actually can conflict and they are not in separate worlds they do conflict with each other, and sometimes they coalesce. So the way that we tend to look at it is we start with, what is the root human question that we are looking at? Sometimes they can live in separate spheres happily, and and a lot of the time that works. But when we really need to, to delve into it, you really need to do a deep dive and to be able to think about, how do I understand the origins of Genesis? How do I read the first chapters of Genesis? How do I make sense when a 38-year-old has cancer? How do I think about these kinds of questions? Because you don't want to be saying, well, here's what happened with the X and the Y and the Z. That's not a good pastoral response to that kind of question. And so you've got to be able to know when do you bring in the science, when do you bring in the religion? Because both science and religion are ultimately human tools. They are ways of understanding the world, impacting the world, making sense of the world. And we don't have... One worldview that is set, it it becomes fluid. And so we've got to be able to accept and understand when do I need to transfer from one perspective to the other without imploding in on ourselves.
0: In this way of thinking, you actually remind me of two of my most favorite, favorite people from both Jewish and intellectual history. One is the great rabbi Moses ben Maimon, or Maimonides, whom I sometimes jokingly introduced to my congregants through his writings as a scientist, which he was. He was a physician. He was a practitioner of medicine and very oriented toward understanding natural phenomena through a what could be called a philosophical or scientific lens. And the other is Albert Einstein, whom I often introduce as my favorite religious philosopher because Einstein was not only doing the math, he was deeply concerned with questions of ultimate meaning and purpose and God's nature. Um, so in all that, do you feel that there is an audience for the work you're doing?
1: We're finding that there is that's, we certainly hope so, but we're finding that actually we have two main projects that we do. One is this interfaith fellowship and this other project is called scientists and synagogues where we've picked a few synagogues that house top notch scientists and giving them some mentorship and guidance about how they as scientists integrate Judaism and science because One thing that we've discovered is that the challenge is not getting Jews excited about science. Often the challenge is getting Jews excited about Judaism. And what we've discovered is a lot of people have said, either I never thought of it like that before, thank you, or I thought I was the only one who grappled with these questions, thank you. There are people who are looking for tools or language to integrate science and religion because— I'm sure many of the people who are listening are at the very least grappling with questions of meaning and purpose and religiosity, and they're curious, and they're looking for ways to think about these kinds of questions and grapple with these questions in a meaningful kind of way. And that's what we aim to offer, is a way to be able to not have to check your brain at the door, to be able to say, if you accept science, this is the place for you. If you think that science has value in our society, this is a place for you. And if you think that questions of ultimate meaning are important for you, this is a place for you. And you may or may not identify as religious or spiritual because that can mean different things to different kinds of people. There's both the, I don't want to say it, but I will, objective scientific reality, and then there's the subjective personal religious experience. And we use different language to talk about those different kinds of questions. And being able to say, I can I can hold both of those things, at least tentatively, it can help us almost untie the knots that may be in our stomach. Um, it may open up avenues or vistas that we hadn't realized before. It allows us to find like-minded people who are trying to Enhance scientific language and the scientific community because there are a lot of questions of where it, where do truths and where do facts come from, people who are advocating for, let's at least understand what the data says, and let's use all of who we are to better ourselves and to better our society. And we're finding that the more we're out there, the more people are finding us and other organizations that are doing work like this as well.
0: That's great. Um, one more question before we go, and I'm sorry I can't help myself, but I know you were a contestant on Jeopardy last year. What was that experience like, and do you have any advice for aspiring candidates for the show?
1: So I will give, actually, my spiritual way of, of looking at Jeopardy, and I wrote, I wrote a whole long blog piece about this, about my Jewish approach to being on Jeopardy. It of course you did. far and away the most fun thing that I ever did. Um, and the most helpful thing that I did and this is a lesson that I think is is applicable whether you're going on Jeopardy or wherever you are, we tend to think that positive thinking is a wonderful thing. I actually am a big believer that positive action is what needs to be done. And sometimes we need to be able to be realistic. So when I was going to sleep, Every night going ready for Jeopardy, I had in my mind, Johnny Gilbert's mind saying, and our returning champion, whose 19-day cash winnings total, and, and I would dream about that. And then I actually practiced and realized I would be up against two other really smart people. At best, I'm going to have a one-in-three chance of winning. And I practiced, and I did all sorts of ways to try to simulate being in the game, and I realized I might hit a daily double and bet big and lose. Or someone else might get the Daily Double and bet big and lock me out. Or I might get Final Jeopardy wrong. And I was realizing, holy cow, I'm going to lose. No matter what, I'm going to lose. And that just lifted such a weight off of me. And I went into the studio and I said, I have no idea how I'm going to do. The categories are going to be outside of my control. My opponents are going to be outside of my control. This is what I have wanted to do. I'm gonna have fun, and it was the most incredible experience. I was had a great lead going into Double Jeopardy, and then my opponent hit the Daily Double in Double Jeopardy, made an eleven thousand dollar bet. <laughs> I was totally locked out, and when it came to Final Jeopardy, I had the biggest smile on my face because I did the best that I could and realized that you got to know what you can control and got to know what you can't and just enjoy the ride. It's
0: the Tao of Trebek. (laughs) That's right. Awesome. I want to thank our guest, Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman, for coming on the show, and even more for breaking down the barrier between science and spirituality. We really need more people who share your vision, Jeff, for a world where reason and religion are not seen as enemies of each other, but rather as allies.
1: Thank you. It was wonderful to be able to be with you.
0: And if you'd like to know more about Rabbi Middleman's work, you can go to the website for Sinai and Synapses, which is sinaiandsynapses.org, or follow our guest on Twitter at at Rabbi Middleman, that's Rabbi, M-I-T-E-L-M-A-N. That's it for today. You can pick up the next episode of Everything is Connected wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Also, check out our website, connectedcast.com, for more information about today's guest and upcoming episodes. And be sure to subscribe so you will always be informed about updates. Everything is Connected is produced by Justine Dom. Our title music is Down in the River to Pray, as recorded by the Pete Malinverney Trio. Stay connected, everyone. Okay.